Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We've got a real treat today. I have Kathleen Kelly with me on the phone today on the podcast, and this is really cool. I went to a party at Paul Sankey's house over July 4th, and I was introduced to Kathleen, and she was described to me as the OPEC whisperer. So, Kathleen, welcome on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. <laughs> you should aspire to way more, but okay. <laughs> the, so how does someone get to become the the OPEC whisperer, particularly, uh, you know, dubbed by Paul Sankey, the OPEC whisperer? Tell us how you got to, tell us about your career. How'd you get where you are? Okay. I'm assuming that you haircut almost everything Paul Sankey tells you to begin with, but um, I think that what he's referring actually, to. A, actually, I don't haircut what he says because with the accent, I don't understand half of it. So, <laughs> okay. so he might not have said OPEC whisperer. He might have said, uh, you know, rabbit whisperer or something like that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So I, um, but I think what he's referring to is that I spent a long time um, in Vienna at OPEC meetings, talking to a variety of different OPEC decision makers and advising them on um, different things that were happening in the oil market. So my mother always says, why would they want to hear from you? And so the reason for that is because I spent my career as a hedge fund manager uh, running a portfolio in commodities. And so I spent all this time looking at how investors decide to invest in the financial part of the crude oil market. And most OPEC producers are experts on the physical side of the crude oil market, and they don't really understand how the rest of the world is looking at oil. And they also, the financial side of the oil market is much larger than the physical side. So, you know, it's all these people sitting at their desks around the world trading crude and having these um, larger impacts than, than OPEC producers can understand or have understand historically. And so I tried to bridge those two worlds for them. Oh, that's really cool. Because in the financial market 10 or 12x, the physical market today, Much when bigger, you. Yeah. Yeah. And so. That's interesting to me because I don't think I appreciated that about OPEC, that they would actually care what the financial markets thought. So this is a relatively new thing um, that they started to think about this because there would be all of these moves in the markets that were fundamentals from the physical point of view weren't exactly aligned with what was happening in the financial oil markets. And so they wanted to understand that better. And so that's one reason why I was um, brought along to help them on that. And so, okay, so maybe let's do this real quick. M most of my listeners are oil and gas folks and are well-versed in OPEC and what it does. But my dear sweet mother listens <laughs> to, my, to my podcast. And so can we give her the 
30 seconds on just what OPEC is um, to give some reference to. And then I really want to jump into what OPEC's thinking and, and what's going on in OPEC world today. Sure. So OPEC uh, just celebrated its 60th anniversary, actually. It's the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, and it was started in 1960. So um, it's actually 61st, but because of COVID, they didn't get to celebrate. So I think this year they're celebrating 60 years. And um, it was started just with five countries um, and then has grown to be 13 OPEC countries. And then in 2018, they invited... 10 other countries to join them to think about making decisions. And that was formalized uh, in 2019 by the Declaration of Cooperation to be OPEC plus. So there's 13 OPEC countries and 10 non-OPEC countries. And the reason I think the 10 non-OPEC countries are not part of OPEC is because there's been a lot of talk about legislation, especially coming out of the U.S., saying OPEC's a monopoly and we should try to break it up. So nobody wants to sign up to be part of a monopoly. So they're they're OPEC plus in that they, uh, they go to the OPEC meetings, but they're not a part of OPEC. I got you. You left out, of course, the single most important fact about OPEC is when they were formed in 1960, it was on September 14th, which is my birthday. So oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I do share that. <laughs> I, well, I do share, I do share a birthday. So when we look at OPEC today and the associated partners in that endeavor, how much of the oil do they control of the of the daily production these days? So, um, you know, it's a strange kind of question because people have been talking about the demise of OPEC for a very long time because as the U.S. Um, grew to be a very large oil producer again over the last uh, decade and Russia uh, production was increasing. Saudi Arabia, who's the largest and the and the de facto leader of OPEC, um, saw that it was no longer the largest oil producer. The U.S. became the largest oil producer. So people kept saying OPEC doesn't really matter. Adding the ten others to OPEC Plus brought Russia and Kazakhstan and a lot of other smaller producers into the mix. So so altogether they've increased their um, production numbers. But the key is not really the production because they still account for, um, I have to actually look at the numbers. Well, I can look at them really quickly here because I've totally forgotten. But um, so OPEC itself is now producing just slightly under 30 million barrels and OPEC plus slightly over 15 million barrels. So altogether, let's call it 45 million barrels out of 100 million barrels total. The key is that the spare capacity in the rest of the world is basically non-existent and they control all of the spare capacity. So, you know, OPEC's goal is to stabilize the oil markets. Um, you know, they they don't say so in their mission, but it's always better if they stabilize the oil price at a higher level than a lower level. And so they take off and add supply to the market when they feel the market needs it. And they have the ability to do that because they have spare capacity, whereas most other oil producers don't have any spare capacity. That's interesting that you bring it up. I was talking to somebody this morning and the person was going on and on about the trouble with the world uh, when it comes to oil and oil supply was under investment by the United States, et cetera. 
And I kind of said, hey, aren't you being really narcissistic here and saying it's all about me, the United States? Because I think all the shale revolution did is we talked ourselves into, for call it five to seven years, that we truly were the marginal producer. We were the low cost producer in the world. And at the end of the day, we screwed it all up and we figured out we generated a lot of oil, but we weren't as cheap as we thought we were. And so it all comes down to Saudi Arabia and, and the excess capacity that they have. And so I actually think our public companies are being rational these days by metering out capital, being careful with what they drill, because I think we're back to the old world where we're price takers from OPEC. And, and uh, so couple of questions on that. How do we know what excess capacity is from OPEC? Because do they tell us the truth? I mean, how do we peel back that onion? Well, I mean, everybody's going to tell you that they have more excess capacity than they actually have, right? Nobody wants to say, oh, geez, we screwed up and we don't actually, you know, have what we told, told you we had last year. So, but the, the issue is that you know, at the end of the day, there's not a ton of spare capacity out there. In fact, you know, the IEA in its most recent report just said that spare capacity will drop below 5 million barrels a day um, by the end of this year, which is, you know, less than 5% of daily production. So, you know, generally when that happens, you do see um, tight markets and much higher prices, which is obviously what we're seeing right now. Um, but within OPEC, you know, obviously Venezuela is all spare capacity right now, but, um, you know, how <laughs> fast can you get it to come back? And Iran has a lot of spare capacity, but that's not, you know, moving anyplace soon. So really the only big spare capacity you have is in Saudi right now. And so, you know, as this, this uh, cycle has played out from last year under COVID, when we saw negative oil prices to now, um, OPEC has gotten stronger and stronger, and it seems to me that OPEC uh, continues to gain market share going forward because nobody really has been. So when you look at Russia, you know, there's a lot of people that think Russia is going to peak pretty soon on their oil production and that they have, you know, an upstream problem. And there, if you look at their cycle of investment, it peaked, um, you know, five or six years ago, and it will not support growing production from here. And so most countries, that's the case. It's not just the US, it's um, it's most countries that, and especially, you know, given the run-up into this year where people started to move away from fossil fuels and ESG uh, matters and all of that has made it so that nobody's investing in in um in oil and gas and oil specifically. And so we, you know, the question of spare capacity is, you know, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably not as high as we think it is. And so it's, there's no good news there that there's plenty of spare capacity, you know, behind the, behind a wall someplace and, and we'll be fine. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. The one thing I tried to do back when I was at Kane Anderson is I would pull the rig counts for, non-US countries and try to watch those. And I noticed there was a spike in the Saudi rig count, and I'll get these years wrong, but maybe 2017 to, or 2016 to 2019, or it was about a three or four year period where they, they went from maybe 50 to 100 rigs to 150 or 200 rigs. 
And I have mixed emotions about that. Half of me says, well, if they really had this excess capacity, why are they amping up the the number of drilling rigs? But the other half of me said, well, that may be the spare capacity they created. And so um, it's, it's interesting because it really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it really feels like uh, I used to tell people when I started my career in oil and gas, they said, what's your industry like? And I said, we wake up every morning hoping the Saudis are in a good mood. And that's what <laughs> it feels like. It feels, feels like we're back to with, with OPEC. They really are in the driver's seat. They really are. And their position just looks to set to strengthen, right? Because the, you know, the Saudis have said they want to increase their production going forward. Um, you know, it depends on what happens with the U.S. Is you tell me, is shale production going to get back to its uh, its highs next year? Doesn't look likely, but yeah, I, you know, one one of the things about being unemployed is I definitely have not studied rig rates and rig efficiency because I don't want to cut into sitting around eating bonbons watching Oprah. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I've only done it on a limited basis, but it just it just feels like I guess we're a couple of million barrels down from our peak, and it feels like we've been flattish around, call it 11 million barrels a day or so, and I just don't see how we increase it. I mean, the... Well, rigs we were, have definitely picked up a lot in the last... Uh, a couple of weeks, as you would expect, with prices moving the way they are. But the rigs that are going up now are being put up by private operators, mostly. Um, they're running more than 50% of the operating rigs right now. And, you know, public companies really have their feet to the fire or whatever the saying is, because investors, as you mentioned, you know, want some returns and they don't want them to just ramp up production and kill the whole cycle. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. We were talking around here at Digital Wildcatters, and we were uh, singing Beach Boy songs. We'll have fun, fun, fun till Daddy takes the T bird away. And the investors have totally taken growth capital away from the industry. I mean, it's you're entitled to a share of your cash flow to go drill wells again, but that's it. And so, you know, and there's just not that much wherewithal in the private company world to sustain much more growth in rig rates, I don't think. Um, well, there, there, it seems like the availability of capital is definitely improving, as you would expect. And so that's you know going to go to private operators as well, but they're less efficient. They're smaller. They don't have the same scale. So, And to some degree, they're just trying to, trying to build to, in hopes to sell to a public company. So yeah, in terms of how right. many, you know, how many how how long a legs this this run has but yeah no it 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 feels like yes there's more cash flow or there's more capital available but it's almost just internal cash flow that that seems available on that front so you know can 11 million barrels a day with rig efficiencies and all that go to 12 million barrels a day you know given where we are, maybe, but boy, I just don't see us. I mean, those decline rates are really, really steep these days. I mean, they it, are, and the you know the so the issue facing um, the market right now, as you're I'm sure well aware, is that there is the sense that the growing crisis for power in Europe and Asia um, is going to feed into the oil markets in the um, through the transmission mechanism of demand for 
oil to make power, which generally we don't use oil to make electricity because it's very dirty. But um, when you can't find anything else, you will use it. And so you're seeing demand for distillate go up globally. And and we think that that's being pulled into the power sector. So when you think about right now, what's going to happen, you know, right now the market's very tight, but when you look at balances, as I do, so my company, Queen Anne's Gate Capital, um, does uh, consulting on commodities, all commodities, but primarily oil. And we build models, as does everybody, and and forecast inventory levels in oil. And so when we're looking at our balances right now, they're very tight in this quarter and next quarter, but they loosen up substantially at the end of 2022. Because demand next year, even with a very robust demand forecast of 4 million barrels a day, which is what I have, you're still going to see supply increase so much next year. And so you're still looking at surpluses at the end of next year. So if you're a U.S. producer right now thinking about next year, the market's not going to look nearly as good. So, you know, how do you make this argument that I want more capital so that I can put more rigs up? so that I can pump more, but the market's going to be in surplus by the end of the year. And it's going to take me six to nine months to get there anyway. So it's a, it's a tricky proposition. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting in that if you look at oil prices today, I mean, pick a number, have, has an eight handle on it somewhere. And who would have ever thought that? I know certainly when uh, I was staring at minus $37 oil, Last April, I never thought we'd we'd see eighty again. But so we actually it, thought that you would see eighty to one hundred dollars this year. Last year, when you saw negative prices, and the reason is because having those negative prices, basically, all commodities are cyclical, right? When prices go up, people demand less of it because they don't want to pay the high prices, so they look for a substitute, and producers make more, and that causes the cyclicality in commodities markets. So what that did last year by dropping prices so much is it increased demand um, and it decreased supply. And so what it did is it shortened the whole commodity cycle, but it made it more exaggerated. So you're compressing it, but you're exaggerating it. So you had a negative price and then you're going to see a much higher high price also. So we were telling uh, people last year when right after we saw negative prices, you should buy every asset that you possibly can that's tied to oil because you're going to see next year really high prices. Um, and, you know, you probably still haven't seen the highs in our opinion. Gosh, that's interesting. While I was uh, getting fired by Kane Anderson, I wish I had uh, known you then and you could have <laughs> called me and like talked me through that as I was curled in a ball crying every day going, oh, yeah, it was funny. I had Dan Pickering on the podcast the other day and we were talking about where oil should be. And Dan's take is it's about where it should be given supply demand. If it gets too much higher, we're going to get into demand destruction. That's not good for us. So so hopefully we'll be able to navigate through those waters. And I said, Dan, you've totally missed the whole take. The whole take with $80 oil is I can claim to be smart again. And that's the important thing. So, <laughs> so I so, would just say one thing that, or two things rather, uh, maybe three. <laughs> so, all right. The, uh, so uh, traditionally around $80. So I spent a long time looking at when demand gets destroyed in the oil markets and telling 
the powers that be at OPEC this. So we we by the time OPEC oil Brent prices got up into the 80s in 2018, um, they were very well prepared to put supply back on the market to keep prices from going much higher because they didn't think the fundamentals were there to support that. And they didn't want to see demand destruction. They were very nervous about their um, customers, their, the consumers. And so, you know, we look at oil prices in every different currency because obviously oil is denominated in dollars, but if you live in Brazil, you're paying real. So when you look at all these different um, oil prices right now, a lot of them are still significantly below the 2018 levels because the currency has moved. And so their currency is stronger relative to 2018. So in Europe, you're still below those levels. In China, you're well below those levels that we saw in 2018. So you're not seeing record prices. You're not even seeing 2018 level prices right now. So demand should be pretty good. Secondly, um, the elasticity of demand has changed because of COVID. So whereas before you saw $3.50 gasoline, I don't know what it is in Texas, and you were like, oh my God, it's so expensive. Maybe I'm not going to drive to you know, the beach this weekend or whatever. Now, COVID restrictions have been in place for a year and a half. You're like, it's $3.50. I don't have to get a Starbucks for $6. I can still get a gallon of gasoline. It's cheaper. I'm going to the beach. I don't care. And so people are not going to curb their demand the same way they have historically at these price levels. The last thing I would say is that OPEC in general has been very focused on their customers. That is no longer the case. So if you look at the dialogue and the, and the communications that are coming out of OPEC, they are much uh, more in line with the idea that they had a really bad year last year. Next year doesn't look so good either. This is their sweet spot and they're going <laughs> to let it run. So they're not looking at like, oh my God, $80 oil. What should we do? Should we add oil back? No, they're, they're saying this is our opportunity to add oil back in a very, um, strategic way, which we agreed upon in three months ago. And we're going to continue to do, as we said, nobody's going to pressure us to put more oil on or less oil on. We're going to enjoy the run for the time that we have it. And then, you know, next year we're going to have to, you know, look at balances again, but right now we're good. And so you're going to see, you're not going to see them intervening to keep oil prices in this $80 uh, range, whereas they have in the past, you're going to see oil go much further. Interesting. So what do we, if we look out kind of three-ish, five years, pick a, pick a, a little bit longer of a timetable, anyone, anyone you want to, you say 22, we're oversupplied, there'll be some pressure on prices. What do we see kind of beyond that? Do we, because you look out at the five-year strip and I haven't looked at it in, in a week or two, but it was still in the 50s, high 50s, but, you know, when you looked out five years, the, the market's basically saying, yeah, you can ramp up production pretty quick and, and uh, we still live in a $60 world. What's your well, kind of take on that? So part of the reason comes back to what we were talking about before in the, the spare capacity conversation. You're going to see OPEC continue to add oil back to the market every month through the end of next year. The first couple of quarters of next year look like they're still going to draw inventories and the year as a whole basically looks balanced, given a very strong demand recovery. After that, you know, the best you can do is guess that gasoline demand grows like 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day. I'm sorry, um, 
product demand, total oil demand, because that's historically what it's been. So, you know, let's say that we go back to an average demand picture. Um, and, you know, I'm not a huge believer in electric vehicles. I think the best way to clean up the environment is to change the fuel that the stock of cars is using right now so that it would be an immediate change instead of trying to actually change the stock of cars, which is going to take a decade or more. So um, so I think that, you know, as we start to continue to see improvements in fuel efficiency and cleanliness, you know, I think and when you think about moving all of these uh, stock of automobiles onto a grid that's not in itself clean, it just makes no sense. So I think, you know, if we have more efforts to get the fuels cleaner, uh, we can make a big impact faster. And so I think that there still is this demand for fossil fuels going forward. And we've seen in this crisis in Europe recently that renewables just are not at the point where they can make a big impact in demand yet. And so that's going to take probably longer than we think it will. So anyway, so I'm going to stick with my average demand growth assumption of like 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day. If we bring back 4 million barrels next year of supply, which looks like we will, that also means 4 million barrels less of spare capacity. So you're going to see more volatility in markets going forward because there's going to be less spare capacity. And as demand grows every year, you still need to make another a million barrels a day in order to meet that demand. So we do have a lot of projects that we're seeing down in South America that will come on. We see some expansions in um, in some regions in uh, in the Middle East and Asia. But, you know, getting a million to a million and a half barrels a day of new oil supply every single year gets tricky. So it does look get- like the end of next year is surplus. 2023 looks like a surplus. But then after that, you start to draw inventories again and from a much uh, lower level to begin with. Do you have an opinion on what happens to that potential for supply ads if we no longer have Exxon at all of the majors being oil and gas companies and them actually trying to morph into more energy transition type companies? Because, you know, I'll tell you this, um, the three folks, uh, the three call it dissident shareholder uh, board nominees for Exxon, one of those uh, folks is a friend of mine, Andy Karsner, who I went to Rice with. And I'll tell you this, that guy is a wind power guy and he is a force to be reckoned with. He is sharp. uh, He's incredibly articulate. And uh, I said on a podcast, I don't know this because I haven't talked shop with Andy in a long time, but the board is going to have their hands full with with uh, Andy. And I think you're hearing rumblings of that coming out of Exxon and talking about delaying certain capital projects. And my two cents worth, and then I'll, I'll let you give your take, is if the majors and you've got all the pressure on the large European uh, integrated to to do less in the way of oil because of admissions. I think adding barrels is going to be a lot tougher than it certainly has previously. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, you know, I think there's some independence that will continue to grow, but um, yeah, I mean it. It all comes down to it's. There's definitely some. Um, 
hesitation around some of these ESG mandates and pressures because you know there is evidence that there's been greenwashing in a lot of these cases. So whether that continues to be really um, uh, a target that all the majors are forcefully trying to hit or whether they become more um, selective about the sub targets within that. And so, but, you know, diversifying into renewables makes a lot of sense. The question is um, who's going to make the fossil fuels that we still need to, you know, the thing is that nobody in this world really thinks about conservation. Nobody ever talks about conservation, right? It's all about how can we have more and, when you grow, when populations are still growing globally and people are still electrifying and people are still adding cars onto the road, you need more. You have to grow supply every year. And so who's going to be there to do that? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's right. So in terms of looking out kind of at your forecast, where does it go wrong? What What potentially happens? You know, I mean, there's always the occasional black swan pandemic event, but are are there politics involved at OPEC that maybe potentially cause issues on this forecast, capital markets opening up in the United States? What do you what do you kind of think potentially happens if your model's wrong and we're talking about it in two or three years, what what potentially popped up? Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen OPEC fall apart already in the last um, 20 months, right? Last, last in the first quarter of 2020, we saw Russia and Saudi Arabia fighting over policy in OPEC and, and really kind of leadership of OPEC and of OPEC plus. And so we've already seen what that can do to markets. I mean, they can come and swamp the market and send prices lower. That's they're the only um, ones that can really do that, is, you know, ramp up production very quickly. So um, that's if you're if you're saying where is the, because I'm obviously still very bullish on oil prices right now. So what what could cause them to go a lot lower? Certainly that could. So that's the supply side. There is a lot of SPR. um strategic petroleum reserve barrels that have been built up around the world over the last year and a half. But we've seen what happens when those are released. Um, in China just released some oil from their SPR uh, last month for the first time ever. And it has a short-term impact, but then people think, well, they're going to have to replace it at some point because they just took oil out of their SPR. So so it's a very short-term impact, and the oil market came back and made new highs very quickly after that. Um, um, I don't. It's hard to say. And you know, so obviously the supply side, we could get more supply. The demand side, we could have a lot weaker demand. We could, you know, have some run-on effect of the pandemic with another variant that shuts things down again, and we can see demand drop off significantly. Um, you know, and that was to the order of magnitude of 8 million barrels a day last year. So that's a lot of oil that can accumulate. But it's kind of tough because, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out if you really, if, you, if you're sitting here in the U.S. and you're a U.S. citizen, you don't want to be, you know, we were told that we're energy um, independent for the last, you know, six or seven years. 
So you don't want to be in a world where you go back to having the potential of OPEC controlling all of the resources. So how do you manage to get more production out of U.S. producers? And it's tough because there's not, um, you know, even if you were to say as an emergency um, solution to the tightness that we're seeing right now, you know, we figure out some way to let U.S. producers produce more. It really, the supply can't come on for another six months. So it doesn't solve our immediate problem. We can release barrels from the SPR, but again, um, we have been releasing barrels since Hurricane Ida because a lot of companies have requested emergency SPR releases. And then we actually have some SPR scheduled to be released anyway because of uh, repairs that we're going to do to the SPR facility. So we've been seeing some of that oil come out anyway, but the you know, the backwardation today in WTI is a dollar in the front, uh, which is, you know, we haven't seen that in over five years. In the DC's backwardation is the highest, I think, in, again, six or seven years. So we're seeing very, very tight physical markets. You know, that's a sign of physical tightness. So we need supply. And, you know, the next big thing that everybody's going to be talking about is Cushing, Oklahoma, and what inventories are there because there's only the potential for another about 10 million barrels to be drawn out of there before you hit, you know, operational tank bottoms. And then that means we're basically out of crude in this country. So, I mean, because Cushing is our, our benchmark storage facility. So it's, um, it's tight. It's really tight. The, the only thing I can see, cause I'm probably, and I don't have a model um, like you do, and you're obviously a hundred times, thousand times in a better position to, to make this. But the, the one thing I worry about is, is it such a cold winter and who knew we would ever worry about winter again, but <laughs> here we are, but is it such a cold winter that economies are having to make the decision do I shut in my industrial capacity to keep my people alive? Um, and does that potentially cause a, a an economic recession? And I haven't, you know, that was, that was a, so Dan Pickering thinks when he was on the podcast and we talked about it, that governments are going to make those hard choices. They're going to keep people alive. He thinks there's enough gas out there in the system that everybody will stay alive kind of like within the bounds of just a normal cold winter. But he thinks we go from maybe having a, on a scale of one to 10, one being, nah, don't worry about it, bro. And 10 being sure, sure thing, it's going to happen, mortal lock. He thinks we went from kind of a, a two to a three on chances of a recession globally to maybe a five or a six because of the possibility of a cold winter and you're, you're starting to hear weather stuff and, you know, I get it. Weathermen and weather women are just, you know, <laughs> horrible. And they're like, they're like my college football picks, but the, uh, the, the, the buzz you're starting to hear is we really are setting up for a La Nina uh, situation this winter, which just means colder weather generally in the Northern hemisphere which is where the people are and where industrial stuff is. So that's that's kind of the one thing I think I see out there that maybe could uh, could trip us up. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, the national weather forecasts, the NOAA has come out saying that La Nina 
probability has risen and that would be for a colder uh, winter. And so, so, you know, there's obviously um, a lot of switching that can be done from um, natural gas back to coal in some countries, over to oil in some countries, you know, all these different um, generation units have different um, uh, mechanisms to switch feedstock. But yes, if you do see um, industrial activity fall off dramatically because there is not enough power to keep the lights on and the heat on, and so they shutter in activity, industrial activity, that could cause a big recession. And we just saw that in the Chinese numbers that came out the other night. Um, their GDP numbers were much lower than expected because of the blackouts that were there. And there is a lot of high-frequency data, which is suggesting that um, you know, the UK, for example, lots of different countries are dealing with that right now. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a potential risk. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So what's kind of the oil forecast and go out kind of beyond at least this year. So, so maybe even get us into 2023. What are, what are you saying that oil prices are going to do? So as OPEC always says, we don't forecast prices, we forecast inventories, but the inventory level is basically 100% correlated with the price level. So that's when they're telling you that they're forecasting inventories, they're really telling you that they're forecasting prices. But so I don't forecast. So, prices. so it's when they, when, they ever, when, they, when they ever say it's not about the money, it's about the money. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. It's about inventories means it's about price. So I think we will see over $100 crude um, this year. Um, but I think that will be the, um, I think that that'll be the top um, of the cycle. So I think next year we'll see prices uh, come down again. But like you're saying, usually the forward curve is a horrible predictor of price, but I do think that we're gonna be at an elevated level of, um, of, of prices. So, you know, when we fall, we're going to fall down into the, um, low seventies, high sixties. And that's basically going to be where we're going to average next year. So I would, I would expect that we see, you know, just under $70 average price next year. Um, you know, costs of almost everything have gone up. Um, but energy itself is an input into everything. And so that lifts What's the saying again? The rising tide lifts all boats or whatever. So, but in addition, the, um, you know, we won't see real builds start until 2023. So I think in 2023, you're going to see prices fall further. Um, and I would think that you would probably see prices get back below $50. So, oh, when, but when you look at inventory levels right now, we're drawing them down to below the five year average, which is what OPEC always has spoken about keeping inventories kind of below the five-year average. And right now the average, the five-year average doesn't include 2020, it's 2015 to 2019. And so we've, we're down in the, the uh, below that average and we're actually at the bottom of that five-year range. We're gonna, if I'm right on my forecast for this quarter and next quarter, we're gonna go significantly below that. Then we're gonna kind of have small draws next year and then a little bit of a build in the end of the year. But so we're still going to have these inventory levels that are at the bottom of the five-year range. So we have much lower inventory levels, despite the fact that we start to build inventories in 2023. So that's going to be 
supportive to prices. You're not going to see $20. You're not going to see $8. You're not going to see negative $43. You're probably going to see $50. Oh, interesting. So, so generally speaking, the curve, right? It's pro- you're probably just a little more volatile than the curve. You're gonna you're gonna have a higher high and a lower low, but generally the shape of the curve is right. Looking out, if we're gonna we're gonna if it's ramp for up lower and, prices going out. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, do this. Uh, I wanna I wanna put you on the spot again. Give me one oh, or two. Yeah, <laughs> give me uh <laughs> give me one or two interesting tales of OPEC either in the past or maybe what's going to happen uh, next year, OPEC intrigue, maybe something we haven't read in the newspaper somewhere. All right. Well, let me just tell you about around OPEC meetings. Let me just warn everybody. So, you know, the, the, the media interest in OPEC is pretty intense. And, you know, you go to these meetings and the, the hotel I stay in is where the, um, where the Saudi delegation stays. And so you go down into the lobby and there's 50 to 100 reporters that are waiting to catch a sighting of the Saudi oil minister. And so, um, but so much that you read in the media and that you hear on TV is just false. So it, it just is not happening. So usually when you go into an OPEC meeting, there's a lot of discussions in advance before anybody even shows up in Vienna. And then there's more meetings and then by the time you walk into the OPEC meeting hall, it's pretty much a done deal. Everybody, you know, nods, says hello, blah, 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 sits down and and they get a deal done. And so normally that's how things happen. Now, in the, over the course of the last couple of years, it's gotten very heated because there's been obviously, you know, Iran has a different point of view. And um, there was the uh, difficulty between Saudis and Russia. But so. I'll just as an example of how bad the media is in covering these meetings. I was with my daughter in Vienna. She was visiting me and we were actually meeting the Saudi oil minister in the morning before he went to the to the um, to the OPEC meeting. And so we were just chatting with him and 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 we left his suite and we walked back down to our room and we. and the TV was on in the room with CNBC on it. And so he was going to the OPEC meeting of which there was a deal and they were going to sit down and, and um, you know, announce the deal. And the headline across CNBC says, Saudi oil minister says, not confident of a deal. And so Tara said to me, how do they, where is that coming from? Like we just left his room 30 seconds ago and now they're saying that on TV. And I said, well, he has to go downstairs through the lobby and maybe somebody asked him something. And I don't know, I can't imagine what he had possibly said. And so I texted his chief of staff and said, you know, CNBC is reporting this. And he's like, we didn't even go out the front door. We went out the back door and got in the car. We did not see one reporter. So they're just making things up. And it's crazy to see it from, you know, from behind the scenes. I have no idea where this stuff comes from. So when you see all these, you know, this intrigue and drama and this person is mad at this person, this is going to happen. Most of that is not actually happening. Most of them are sitting down, having a meeting and, you know, moving forward. There's there's not the the intrigue that's assigned to it by the media. Oh, that's funny. I had a buddy that uh, during college 
would go to Africa and he'd work as a safari guide. And when folks would show up, the buzz would start about, are we going to get to see the lion on this safari? And he'd take them out the first day and they'd, he'd hype the lion up the whole time. Oh, will we see the lion? And, <laughs> you know, they'd see all these animals. And then the second day they'd go out. And then the third and final day they'd go out and they'd see the lion and everybody left. And it was great. And uh, John told me, yeah, we fed the lion. So he sat right there. <laughs> we, 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 know where the, we know where the lion is. I, I, I got to wonder if, uh, if some of the misinformation is not just member nations kind of having fun with the press. Uh, it could be. It could yeah, be. Could be. So anyway, well, Kathleen, you were great to, to come on. I really appreciate this. This is, uh, it's been just crazy times because I, I, I was cleaning out some stuff the other night, my remainder of my office. It's kind of pesky. They fire you. They don't let you just leave the stuff in your office, you actually have to pack it up and take it with you. But um, anyway, I was, I was digging through some stuff and I'd written myself a note in January of 2020 saying, we're going to hit $75 oil at the end of this year. And uh, <laughs> little, I was, I was off, maybe directionally I was right. Maybe it was timing, not necessarily my number. But uh, <laughs> anyway, this, is, uh, this has been fascinating stuff. Um, real quick, Tell me, uh, tell me a little. You you talked a little bit about your uh, company. Tell me just a little bit more about it and where folks can reach you uh, to the extent they'd like to visit more. Yeah, sure. Thanks. We have a website which is uh, qagcapital.com. So it stands for Queen Anne's Gate Capital. Um, Queen Anne's Gate was the name of the street that I lived on in London when I formed the company. So not very original. Um, and. Uh, we do all sorts of research. We have some weekly um, pieces of research that we send out to clients. We do bespoke research on different topics um, that clients ask us about. We look at renewables. We look at metals. We look at ags. Uh, but, you know, obviously the last couple of years, the focus has been on the oil and gas markets. And, and you know, it's just it's actually so fun right now. It's just such a interesting time because when you see how everything feeds into the same puzzle that we're all trying to solve, which is, you know, how we have enough energy going forward. Um, it's just fascinating. And some people are so smart and coming up with such great ideas and, you know, we're going to make a lot of improvements that are going to get us to a cleaner environment, but you know, hopefully we can do it a little bit quicker going forward anyway. But so, um, the inf most of the information is on the website and, um, you know, we're happy to send stuff out to people to have a look if they're interested. Well, cool. Again, can't thank you enough for, uh, for coming in and maybe I'll get to bump into you at the formula one, one race this week. I know I'm going to text you and see where you are. Cause you might be someplace really exciting that we want to be. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, no, that uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I will say this: I've never had a bad time in Austin, Texas. So I know, but I don't think we're going to see Austin. I think we're going to be on this, you know, track the whole time because there's there's big concerts every night, and there's. Did you look at the schedule? They just sent out the schedule. It's pretty exciting. I know. I'm fired up about Billy Joel. The one thing I wish I could do, and I'm not going to be able to get there. The psychedelic furs are actually playing tonight in Austin. No way. 
Yeah. And at the track? Not at the track. They're playing, I think, at one of the club's emos. That's oh, how fun. Austin. Austin builds itself as the live music capital of the world, and they really do have a lot of great shows coming through there. The thing I will say about the Psychedelic Furs, they sound like such wimps on the album, but I promise you live, they're almost worthy of being The Clash. They are so good live. <laughs> in fact, in fact, one of their former guitar players left the band in 2002 to join Guns N' Roses. So, wow. Yeah, I just say that. So... Yeah, definitely text me when you're uh, when when you're down there, and hopefully we can say hi. My my sense is it's going to be a zoo. I know. I think you're I think you're right about that. But uh, I'm hoping I get to go see Billy Joel. I'm uh I'm looking forward to that. Great. Okay. Well, see you in Texas. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks again for doing this. Bye. Bye.